If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Beautiful Humans, the social change cast, where behavior analysis and social justice collide. Join us as we aim to move the needle on personal and social change by tapping into the beautiful humans inside of all of us. Follow us on Spotify, Apple, or whatever medium you prefer to make sure you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at Beautiful Humans Change and on Facebook at Beautiful Humans, the social change cast. All right, welcome back, beautiful humans. We're back for another episode. This is Erin. And it's Denisha. Hope you all had a great week. Um, We decided that we were going to take a brief post-reinforcement pause. We did not put out an episode for, what was it, like two weeks? I think it might have been three at this point. Maybe three weeks, yeah. So Mm -hmm. we decided to uh, create a nice little state of deprivation for all of you. make you kind of wanting some more a little bit and you are certainly in for a treat tonight um but first did we want to check in or do we just want to like move in Hmm. you know what what? i guess we don't really need to check in but maybe we should still tell the people who are listening what's in store for them tonight why don't you do that then i got you okay so tonight we're doing things a little bit different um we're offering our first panel discussion and I have obviously been really excited talking to Aaron behind the scenes and talking to the folks that you'll hear from tonight um, just about doing this in general and yeah maybe we should talk a little bit about why we wanted to do this as well Aaron like why is this type of show important to you Uh, so you know it's it's interesting we always talk about uh, hearing from the voices, um, you know, that we talk about all the time and not just talking about people, but actually hearing from the people that we talk about. Um, can I tell can I tell a story real fast? Cause you were an example of this. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, committed actions and, uh, living those committed actions. So, uh, for most behavior analysts who go to like ABAI, we know that the deadline was that today for submissions for proposals was I think today Mm -hmm. but so of course there's like this like you have everybody's scrambling at the end and finding people to be on panels and all this stuff but like a week ago you had you had messaged me and sent me an email and had asked if I wanted to be on a panel and somebody had approached you and asked you to to be a discussant on this panel about I think it was gender and sexual minorities in the state of that in the field of behavior analysis and um you know, you were very transparent with them and said, uh, you know, that's I'm not really a part of that, that group. I don't identify that way. Like you should hear from those people that uh, that identify that way. And so I think um, that is exactly what we're doing tonight is bringing people uh, from who we want to hear from that that others need to hear from, too. So that is um, at least my perspective. Do you have anything yeah. to, to add to that? Yeah, I definitely agree. And, and that 
has been a huge part of why I, I really wanted this show to happen, especially knowing that this field, most of us work with folks that come from the neurodiverse uh, population. And oftentimes we don't hear from the people that we work with, right? And we don't hear those perspectives. And tonight opens up the opportunity for us to just do that, to just shut up and listen. And so I guess with that stated, we're just gonna shut up, shut up and listen. And listen, um, <laughs> well, let's do it. I All wanna right. go ahead and actually introduce the people that are here with us tonight. And if you're joining us, obviously I gave you a little bit of what the topic is, but we're gonna be talking about neurodiversity and we're gonna be hearing from folks that are also in the behavior analysis field who um, identify in that way. So to get started, let me go ahead and say hello to everyone. Hi. Hey. <laughs> Everyone's waving. Hi, Cody. <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and start with you. Hey, Dana. Um, Cody, if you want to go ahead yeah. and tell our listeners a little bit about you, who you are. Awesome. Um, so my name is Cody. I'm 26. I currently live in Tampa, Florida. I just moved back here. Um, I was diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder in about 2013, so my sophomore year of college. Um, even though looking back, I've probably been experiencing the symptoms and could have been diagnosed probably around 2000, um, the year 2000. Uh, but overall, uh, so I just graduated with my master's degree in behavior analysis from Lindenwood University, studying under Maggie Pavone. She's a great professor. Um, and I got my uh, bachelor's degree in psychology from Marquette University in 2016. So that's pretty much everything about me. <laughs> Let us go to Kiyomi. Hi, I'm Kiyomi. I am currently a um, special education emphasis and applied behavior analysis student. I will be graduating in May and finishing up my courses in the summer. Um, I have two children. Uh, I received my Um, But it really was just a matter of turning to indigenous and black voices for me to kind of make the the switch, if that makes sense. So when thinking about the educational system, you know, we talked about it on the show. And of course, everyone knows there are politicians that are intentionally hellbent on making sure that the true history is not taught into schools. And when you're when we're we're literally talking about they want to continue the indoctrination of whiteness and white supremacy inside of schools. And there is something that white supremacists, racist, white people as a whole stand to lose should the real history be fully taught um, to all of the folks. Cause we, you know, we were taught the same whitewash history as you all were. And it really rest then on our communities to continue to tell us the truth, right? And so what happens when you when you tell the truth, you empower the folks that you're lying about. And then also the folks that you are bolstering get to actually see who they are full circle as well. Um, and so I, 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 I think everything that you're saying in terms of like coming full circle and recognizing like, oh, 
what I've been taught is a farce. And then now I'm going to spend my life dedicated to also educating other people about the um, inaccuracies and stuff. So, so I want to start with, can you talk to us a little bit about the history of colonialization um, and specifically talk about it um, in terms of settler colonization? Absolutely. So I think it's important to differentiate that um, colonization has been happening since the beginning of human history. There's always been war over territory. However, the context of European colonization of the Americas um, was much, much different um, and something that still continues to permeate our culture today. Uh, It began during the founding of the quote unquote new world. So that's North and South America that we're talking about. Um, it started in the 1400s and is still continuing. The U.S., France, Spain, and Britain all still have colonies um, that are occupied today. Uh, since I am American, the majority of this uh, perspective will be on American colonization and the role the, the United States has played um, in colonizing, as well as the significance of the United States as a settler colony. Um, So colonization, as I mentioned, has been practiced throughout human history. However, um, it changed in the 1500s due to a technology shift. Um, The printing press, uh, which was invented by Johann Gutenberg, made it easier to publish books and widely spread information. So we can kind of look at what the printing press was then to what the internet um, was 20 years ago. Some of the inventions in the 1500s that we still see are really important and play a large role in uh, society today are um, advances in gun technology, the graphite pencil was invented, bottled beer in London, um, the flushing toilet was invented. So all of this kind of technology uh, allowed for advancements to be made in the theories of mathematics, astronomy, geography, natural history, and people started to move about because of the technology changes. Um, When we talk about what colonialism looked like for those that were being colonized, it often looked like um, taking away resources, uh, intentionally displacing people, and then subverting the indigenous population with political capital and educational dominance more than often through violence. Um, Oftentimes during the colonial period and now, um, even if it's Uh, less in your face and a bit more insidious. Um, Those who were the victims of colonization were unjustifiably portrayed as lesser than in intelligence, character, and culture. Um, They put forth that kind of rhetoric to continue to dehumanize these populations, uh, to kind of come up with an excuse of why it was okay. Um, We'll talk about that a little bit more later on when we talk about specifically settler colonization and how settler colonizers deal with imposing their culture onto other cultures. It's interesting, like, um, uh, of all the, like, the technology that you just listed off, like, I've never thought about that being, I, I, I don't know, I guess I just think of people, like, I don't think about the things that they invented and the role that that, that played. And it's just, I don't know, I'm, I'm sitting here, because I can see the list of the things that you just, you just said, and I'm like, the flush toilet. I'm like, first of all, I don't think about that as like technology, right? <laughs> but it is. Um, but it's like, wow, like, wh- I wouldn't think that all of those things like really kind of played a role in, in that, you know? 
I, I really, I included that list and it's not something that um, got a lot of attention when I did this presentation at, at ACBS and it's probably because people couldn't see it. Um, but I included it purposefully because all of those things I feel like are still so incredibly relevant. And, and it, to me, explain a lot. Like we talk about symbols and the way we kind of think about behavior around those. And I could get really deep into it, but I'm glad that you picked up on that too, because it's something that really stuck out to me when I was researching for this. The symbols part is incredibly important, I think, and, and what that means. And even, you know, when you put that in an RFT and, and relation in terms of like better than, worse than, or something like that, like you think about um, class status, you think about um, people who don't have indoor plumbing and where they fall on like a hierarchy in our in our brains as far as like better than or worse than than other people. And so I think that the access to these things or what they have produced, um, you know, in terms of uh, just symbols of, of who people are or how they function in society. I think it's really important to, to note. Absolutely. I'm so grateful that you picked up on that. <laughs> Thank you for interrupting. You are welcome. Sorry. <laughs> um, so I have this, um, I know those that are listening can't see, but I have this map and it shows countries that have been under European control and it's pretty much the entire world. Um, I think it, it's safe to say that the majority of the world at some point has been under European control. Um, and those that haven't been under European control have had some, uh, have been under the European sphere of influence or have had some type of um, interaction with Europe regardless. So when we talk about uh, settler colonizers and the idea of settler colonialism, um, something that's important to remember is that settler colonialism is a structure. It's not something that happened. It's something that was implemented and still continues to survive today. And that's how it was designed and it's doing exactly what it was designed to do. Um, so here we can talk about um, kind of post-colonial theory and the way that people conceptualize colonialism. So we're living in a post-colonial time following the colonial period. Um, settler colonialism refers to a concept of colonialism which seeks to replace the indigenous population of a territory or a colony with a new society of settlers or colonizers. And that's really, really relevant, particularly in the United States. Um, we have now a large settler colonizer uh, population in the United States when we once had a, a very large indigenous population. Um, settler colonialism as a structure can be seen in a wide variety of practices such as genocide, forced assimilation, segregation, enslavement, family separation, internment, and reservations. The way this structure plays out in relationships between people um, and places is by domination and subjugation that becomes woven into the fabric of society. And we can talk about the ways that we see that still today with police brutality, um, with the violence that's going on at the border, all sorts of ways that we see this still kind of playing out um, in our current history. Uh, Annibal Quijano uh, was one of the first um, to kind of popularize academia talking about um, colonialism and coloniality. He's a Peruvian sociologist and humanist thinker that is known for developing the concept of the coloniality of power. And it's kind of a matrix um, but it's also uh, a structure um, 
the way that uh, he talks about it is conceptualizing it two ways. Uh, the rhetoric of modernity, which is the promise of salvation by converting, um, civilizing, becoming new, innovating, progressing, and developing um, in the name of being modern. And then the logic of coloniality is the darker side of Western modernity that we um, are now, I believe, I hopefully I say, are coming to terms with as a society. A lot more people are speaking up uh, and out against it, um, in which violence, slavery, genocide, economic dependence, resource extraction, and epistemic upheaval are carried out in the name of modernity, thus legitimizing the dispensability or expendability of human life. And I think at the heart of all of this and and why it's so important to me and why it's so important for me to work with white people and settler colonizers on this work is because at the center of it, it's devaluing a human life. And it gets to that point so quickly and so easily um, that it's scary. And I think that's what a lot of people, when they kind of engage with this, it can be a little bit deterring because the language is really heavy. Um, and it's difficult to kind of sit with when we talk about things like this. I might be getting a little bit too far. And if I am, then feel free to say we'll come back to it later. But everything that you said, you know, especially the part where you're talking about Europeans having control over most of the world. Um, when thinking about that, then can you talk about what that means for white people who obviously have learning histories of, of this um, and extend past um, that whole notion of power and control. Um, what does that mean for white people who wish to kind of reject your community's history of subjugation and, and violence like in their day-to-day -day lives? I think that it comes down to context and education. I think that this is history and also rhetoric that, as I mentioned, is really difficult for white people to engage with because it takes a, a level of responsibility in accepting what's happened and accepting that we don't have control over what's happened. But we do have control over what's happening today. And we have a duty to learn about what happened to inform our context now. And that's why I think history and behavior analysis really complement each other, because we can learn so much about the current context from engaging with the past context. Um, I think that that kind of answers your question. I don't think you were too far off track. I think that talking about what it means for white people that European control has been prominent throughout the last, you know, most of modern history, at least. Um, says a lot. I think we could talk about that for hours and hours. Um, but I think it comes down to control. I think it comes down to the control of resources and ultimately the control of human beings. And that's um, kind of what I was getting at and also speaks to your point about policing that you wanted to skip over. But I think it. I, I'm glad you asked that question. The language that you're talking about, you said legitimizing the dispensability or expendability of human life. And I think that like that right there, just it, it speaks directly to the heaviness of the language that's being used. And whenever I talk to people about this, or even just ask a basic question, like what is, what have you learned this past year in this, like this 
time period where a lot of us um, or a lot of people have been radicalized by all of the events that have happened. And this word shame keeps coming up, but I'm sure you'll get to that when you talk about act. But I think that like shame is such a, um, a heavy feeling, right? It's such a deep feeling um, that I think directly goes uh, to people who fully recognize uh, the gravity of the situation. It's, it's those kind of feelings that show up. And that's why this is so hard, um, you know, to, to sit with and things like that. So just some of my observations from this past year of, of what people are saying, but also understanding that we didn't create the system. We know it exists. We know we need to do something, but you know, we, 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 we didn't create that. We have a, a, a duty to do something about it now, but. I think the accepting that we didn't create it gives people two options. You can either move into it and say, okay, I didn't create it, but it's my responsibility to help dismantle it. Or you can move away from it. I didn't create it. It's not my responsibility. And I think that's one of the two ways that white people go. And they respond with, you know, a multitude of other emotions. But I think at the heart of it, you're absolutely right. It's shame. And we talk a lot about that in the anti-racist reading group, because it comes up for so many people that they don't even want to articulate their own experiences with racism because it's so painful. Right. And I think that's another reason why it's so important for white people to do this work kind of on their own. Um, so they don't take up more space with all of their big, heavy feelings, you know, like, and I just, I think that that's one thing that I tell people too, is like, you can feel everything you want to, but please don't make that take, don't let that take up any more space, um, you know, than we already are. Like, let you are, do the work, but save your, you know, save your feelings and all of that. Um almost like compartmentalizing. It's not, it's not that it's not legitimate, you know, and how, how you work through these things. But, um, but I think there's a place to do that that doesn't continue to, um, up, you know, cause more harm. I absolutely agree. I think that uh, a lot of white people have the, the experience of having the, the feelings and then not knowing what to do with them. So they go into spaces that aren't for that and then dump it because, they're used to being able to go and do that kind of thing. And then they kind of get disrailed and, and, or derailed, I guess I should say from their main objective, which was to put themselves into this kind of work. And I, that's part of the reason I, I keep bringing up the reading group, but I've actually learned a lot from that experience. And it wasn't what I intended to learn. I intended to feel really tired at the end of it. And oh my goodness, I'm carrying all this space for these people's feelings and they just don't get it. And, but really it's been a learning experience for me and it's been a really community centered kind of, okay, yes, here's, here's where we can talk about our feelings, but we're also going to talk about what we can do as a community uh, of white people to kind of work against this system. And this, this is work that's new to a lot of people in our field and outside of it. It's brand new. And yes, there's, tons of resources right now and lots of books and lots of ways to engage on social media. But I don't feel like that's giving people everything they need. I feel like it's there, but they don't know how to utilize it really um, appropriately or to the extent that it needs to be utilized. So I'm, I'm glad that you brought up these points. One of the points is that there's work to be done for all of you, right? And with that, I think sometimes what I see even in a social media space, you have white folks that we might know personally and have maybe experienced harm through them. And not to say that there is no harm 
from any of the folks on the show right now, but you might have folks that you know have continuously admitted harm and yet are talking heads for diversity, racism. Um, but one thing that I appreciate is when that work comes back to self, right? Because there is a, a lot of work to be done there. Um, if you can get up and speak about this is what anti-racism is, this is what racism is, but you're not talking about that personal impact, the shame you felt the, the or the new information that you learn that you're applying to yourself. I think it falls short. And I absolutely do believe that white people should be carrying that burden to, to um, communicate and teach one another those things in that way, like contacting the the hard uh, parts, the ones that folks might typically avoid. Um, and there's no one else that really can relate to what that feels like, right? As an individual who is on the other side, I can only tell you what it feels like to be oppressed from your racial group, but I can't tell you what it feels like to be a person who also carries that learning history. And I think that you all can teach each other how to, you know, maneuver, not maneuver, but um, move through those things. I agree. I absolutely agree. I think uh, I, I would like to share a personal experience. I did not um, have a social media, any social media up until this summer. I took a break for like two years. And because of uh, COVID, I was losing my marbles. So I decided to uh, engage in social media and I made a Facebook and an Instagram. Previously to that, I had um, written a paper that I wanted to be my thesis that was uh, exploring the experience of Black behavior analysts experiencing microaggressions. And I thought it was a wonderfully written paper. I was so excited. I thought, everybody's going to love this. And I sent it out to people. And the response that I got back was, we've got it. Sit down. And I really took that personal. I thought, oh, my God. Here I was trying to do the right thing. And I've made this huge mistake. And I'm a laughing stock, And I'm a joke. And I had to sit with all of this kind of, where do I go with this? Where do I go with wanting to help, but not knowing how to turn to my own community to do what needed to be done. And that was a really big learning experience for me. And that's kind of what the book group became because I realized that I didn't need to be speaking about what black experiences were, though I care, though I want to elevate it. I did not know about the amazing work of black women in this field who were already talking about things like that. I didn't have access to that knowledge. And once I did, I sat down and I figured out a different way to help. And I think that really speaks to your point in the sense that white people need to be turning to their own community to discuss the difficult feelings that comes with this work. And they need to shut up and show up when it comes to doing direct action type of work, like showing up at protests and that kind of thing. Um, and that's really what I've learned from this experience. Yeah. I mean, we just had, we're in the holiday season. We just had Thanksgiving pass. We probably last year we said it on the show, but it comes up like you will see folks doing the work when the SD is a person of color, right? White folks show up. Yeah, we're so for this. And, but you'll go sit with your family members, your community and won't say anything. And so I think, you know, I love the, the full turn that happened and that you were able to take that and actually apply that because some people get shut down like oh I just tried to help and recognizing what those feelings are actually about right um also connected to once again 
potentially connected to the control aspects like you thought or the savior aspects like i i have all the tools the information i can help them um live a better life worry about your you know what i mean and so so yeah i'm, I'm glad that you actually shared that story and i'm pretty sure that we're going to have listeners that can relate to that or might learn from that we always talk about like I don't know, on the back end, Denise and I talk about like when we were creating content, it's like, who is this for? Who are we speaking to? And and the the phrase that keeps coming back is like, we're here for people that are doing the work. You know, like our content is put out for people that are doing the work. And that's exactly like you embody that, you embrace that, like that whole story that you just told, um, which is in contrast to kind of the the double, uh, I don't want to say double standard, but like the the it was like two people, like I'm, I'm one person in this context and another person in this context, or I just have two, you know, different repertoires of behavior. Um, but I, that's, that's what our content is for. Who we want it to be for is like, that are people that are, that why we made this, the one wanted you to come on the show. I mean, it's just, it kind of just aligns so perfectly with that. I think that that entire experience taught me that sometimes, uh, even with our best intentions, we're still centering our own narrative. And sometimes we can try our best to do the work and we're still injecting ourselves into spaces that we don't need to be in. And it's okay for someone to tell you to sit down. Like I sat with that and I, at first I, like I said, I was so embarrassed and there was a ton of shame that came up. And I turned to act for my tools and I thought, okay, how can I take this discomfort and turn it into committed action? And how can I make choices that align with my value of anti-racist work and decolonizing work and make it meaningful for my community, which is the behavior analytic community at large, but more in specific, white behavior analysts. And I think that kind of goes into our next point about Eurocentrism and kind of what you were talking about, Denisha, with this type of European sphere of influence around the entire world and centering the European narrative. And that's just a, a tiny microcosm of the way that we still continue to center the European narrative, even in our own day-to-day life um, and our, our goings-on when it comes to wanting to do this kind of work. And even doing this presentation, I felt like I was running the risk of speaking for the Indigenous community because I don't want to be seen as a uh, an authority on decolonization. I just engaged with the academic rhetoric on it. And I felt like um, when I talk about ACT, most of what I'm talking about is geared towards settler colonizers. So it's it's steps that, that white people can take to incorporate this kind of information into their day-to-day life. Um, and one of the pieces of feedback I got on this presentation uh, after I did it from ACBS was that um, they wished that it wouldn't have been from that perspective but I am not an authority on the indigenous perspective. So I didn't want to present myself um, as that. Uh, When Quijano is talking about um, settler colonialism as a structure, he says that there's two parts of it, uh, external colonialism and internal colonialism. Um, External colonialism is the expropriation. So the sending out, I like to think of that word of, um, of fragments and pieces of the indigenous worlds, animals, plants, and human beings. Um, but the purpose of extracting them is basically to exploit them um, and to feed the appetites of the colonizers who get uh, marked as the first world or the old world. I think we hear it uh, talked about a lot. Uh, External colonialism is also when people move from one land to colonize another land. 
Uh, it's when one nation controls the political and economic systems of a less powerful nation. Some examples of that are um, cheap labor, less restrictive labor laws, cheap land and other resources, lower taxes on capital. And I think that there are a lot of uh, examples from our history as a country that would really speak to um, this external colonialism and the way we kind of lotteried off indigenous land um, following the Civil War and prior to it as well as we were acquiring more and more land. Uh, internal colonialism is uh, hidden colonialism and more so has to do with the biopolitical and geopolitical management of people, land, flora, and fauna within the domestic borders of the imperial nation. Um, it's a condition of oppression or subordination and it's applied by social scientists and others to understand the historical and cultural conditions or experiences that were a direct result of the actions of government. So internal colonialism is really the experience of um, human beings and, and uh, animals that experienced colonialism. Some examples of that um, could be the colonized minority like um, black people in the US as well as the desire to take in control land from um, the indigenous population in the US. I'm interested if you could draw the connection to external and internal uh, internal co um, colonialism within the field of behavior analysis. Um, how do we see examples um, of both of these show up within the field? I so my least uh, favorite thing about behavior analysis and that I think of that first comes to mind is this kind of idea of what it means to be professional and uh, behavior in professional spaces and dressing professional and acting professional and speaking professional and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I just, I feel like professional is a code word for act like how a collegiate white male would act. Like to me, that's what it brings up for me. Um, so internal colonialism, when I see that uh, in behavior analysis, I see that we have a person at the top of the hierarchy and then people at the bottom of the hierarchy and those who are at the top of the hierarchy um, have the power. I also see this when it comes to the treatment of the autistic community and our history uh, with the autistic community. I see it with the Lobos and Rikers issue. Um, I see this all over the place uh, in our field. And um, when it comes to external colonialism, I think about uh, some organizations that um, feel like they need to travel to bring ABA to new places. Uh, I've seen a lot of organizations that do that. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm just saying it is an extension of colonialism because the uh, industry of ABA and the structure of the way that we have kind of come to know it um, is a branch of colonialism because it subjugates people to control. And so that's just kind of my conceptualization of that. Uh, I feel like that's a really deep question. And if I had more time to think about it, I would have a better answer. Uh, so I hope that answered it. Uh, yep. I had a surface level of what I was thinking these answers were, and I wanted to hear it from you. So I'm glad. I just want, I wanted our listeners to be able to outline that um, very tangibly because colonization is an issue within behavior analysis. And so to be able to have examples um, of how it shows up, I just think was is useful. So thank you. I think what's important too, is it's oftentimes when we hear these words again, because of the frames we've created um, 
or learned that we automatically think it's about race or ethnicity only, and that's not necessarily the case. That it embodies all of you know uh, all of these dominant um, systems in terms of heterosexuality, uh, cisgenders, all of those things. And um, I'm glad it's, glad that you brought up like the, uh, our work with the autistic population, you know, because um, like neurotypical standards and all of that. You know, it's just. Um, it, the more that you dive into it, the more that you've realized it's like, Oh crap, like that's a part of this too. You know, it's just, it's, um, it's so much. I really think it speaks to the way that it is continues to be a structure and not just something that happened in our history. It's a system and it's an insidious system because it shows up in ways that we don't even expect it to. And we do have to take a very critical lens to these kinds of things to say, okay, how is this continuing this kind of oppression? Um, Because I think that's really what it, it comes down to. When we talk about the colonial matrix of power, um, this is something that was uh, coined by Quijano in his discussion of the coloniality of power. So the coloniality of power is made up of this matrix and it's kind of like a triangle. Um, and it's there's three parts of it, um, the coloniality of power, the coloniality of knowledge, and then the coloniality of being. And I really like to read this quote, if that's okay. Um, it says, we all live within a multiplicity of colonialities, subjected in both body and mind. It is not only our labor or our sexualities and genders that mark colonial relations. It is not only the wars, the mass murder, and death squads organized by imperialist classes, nor the subcolonies formed by women, African-American communities, or ethnic identities. It is also the hegemonic mind, the white or masculinist or heterosexist or national chauvinist mind that constitutes and is constituted by the coloniality. And Aaron, that that's exactly what you were just saying. It's everywhere. It's not just in one thing. It's in all of these kind of intersections when we talk about identity and we talk about intersectionality. In every single way, this shows up. Uh, That's a loaded quote. Like there's so much in that that um, you'd have to like take apart and read sentence or section by section, you know, that it's just, it is, it's so deep. um, that. Again, it's it, like this work takes so much time. It's lifelong work to even understand all the nuances that go into all of that. It's yeah, I'm glad you brought that quote up. I really like that. I, and I think it, it goes to show that because this is a system that we have all been subjected to, it's also a system that we all have uh, a hand in dismantling and we can all do that together in different ways. Um, but it's on s- certain people to show up more Um, than it is others, uh, given the point that we're at in history right now. Um, The coloniality of power matrix, when you break it down, uh, the coloniality of power part of that matrix is when power is unequally distributed in nations where only with, uh, I'm sorry, where only people with the financial means have the power. Um, We can definitely see that playing out in the United States right now with COVID. There are tons of um, displaced people. I volunteer on a committee that's doing research into um, uh, solutions for people who are currently unhoused. And there are there's so much work to do right now with days ago. And she was very, very upset because her company had put out this wonderful statement and things were going great. And they promised all these things. And to date, nothing has changed. And 
the conversation that I had with her was, yes, people are having these conversations and yes, what do we need to do and what do we need to change and all this other fun stuff. But the problem is it's not authentic. It's we just want you, we just want to say we did it, yay, and let's go about back to business as usual. So in that understanding and gaining of cultural competency, understanding that it's not just a one and done, we attended a meeting, we're going to formulate this group and yay, we're done. It's a continual process because they're going to be something I'll use as an example. I use a lot of assessments. I never thought that a lot of the assessments that I was utilizing with my clients were culturally biased mm -hmm. because think about it. If you have a family that they have something as simple as a communication device, an iPad is not a cheap device to buy. So in order for a family who might not have the ends meet to pay the rent bills and everything else to then go in and ask them, hey, we need you to buy a $500 plus iPad with not just the iPad, but the, the case for the device and all these other things, that can affect the, the outcome of that assessment. So being able to see culture in more than just one area and understanding that, yes, people are going to say, yeah, 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 yeah. They're going to yes you to death, but mm -hmm. continue to go because that's the only way anything changes. Yes. Um, one of my biggest pet peeves for any movement, I think. And it's so, it's so interesting because like one is like you want, it's like, yes, this is what I want to see. And uh, no, it's not what I want to see. I don't want to see one off actions. I don't want to see people who are, like you said, trying to placate. It feels good for a moment. It's temporary. And it and it and it goes, and we're still back in the same cycle, and so it's not good enough. And then, um, for me, in this moment with the field of behavior analysis, holding that feeling at the same time of trying to hold on to hope for better, because part of me is like, uh, uh, where y'all been at? <laughs> like, um. You know, we had Elizabeth Hughes Fong's talking, uh, Fong talking about adapting cultural standards almost a decade ago. Yeah. Where was y'all at? Like, you had people in high places that were that you know shape behavior analysis programs that were not listening. Where y'all been at? But all y'all got Facebook statuses now. All y'all got you know events happening where you want to sit down with people who look like us to hold space and say, Oh, look, I'm an ally. And that's not okay. My thing that I'm holding on to is what happens. Those people will shift away and go back to their corners and will be, and, and the ones who are actually radically changed and transformed through this moment will continue to push us forward. You know, that one ripple in the ocean will get, We'll make more ripples and we'll see larger strides as we continue forth. But yeah, we've we've been seeing some actors in our field um, over the past few weeks and just call it for what it is. Um, and I'm always excited to see what what transforms out of movements because people do get radicalized, radicalized through each movement. And I think right now what has happened. More of us have found each other. That we didn't part. know we didn't know each other existed before this time <laughs> because I, I'm, I'm sorry like and i know for me i have never had this many african-american 
or minority BCBAs in my cell phone and their contacts to where I was literally thinking about it today. Like, wait a minute, I, I was, it was just me at one point. Now I got this person, this person, this person. Okay, th I don't feel by myself now. All right, cool. But I, like you were talking about Elizabeth Fong and how, and how things have changed and how like the movement, the movement has progressed, God willing, and will continue. Um, she had a quote in one of her papers in 2017, which honestly is has been my mood since day one. It literally states that cultural competency is no longer an option, but a necessity for servicing increasing multicultural backgrounds and consumers. Like the United States of America, our world is not the same it covid alone has demonstrated that we as a world think in the blink of an eye something can change so we cannot continue to function as business as usual this the cat is out of the bag there is no you can't get them back in let's let's get her done mm -hmm. absolutely and just from a function-based perspective aba doesn't stand to survive if they do not right like thank you in the great words of our sis um i can't remember her name right now aba field if you don't get it right you were about to lose your job okay like it's not <laughs> <laughs> best, best video on instagram ever i'm sorry just <laughs> yes so all right we've talked a lot about the issues and I feel like we've talked a lot about how not taking a cultural uh, lens can impact and, and affect our individuals and our families and the larger community. But I want to make sure, Sean, did you have anything else you wanted to add? Um, the first the first thing I can say is, you know, thank you to all your listeners, period, because they've already taken that first step. They've identified that they don't know everything and they've actually tuned in and are continuing to tune in because um, we know some folks, as soon as they hear a topic, they're like, and next. Um, but being able to seek out not just this podcast, and it is absolutely wonderful, and y'all know I love y'all to the moon and back, but not just this podcast, but seeking out other podcasts, seeking out other books, seeking out articles, and being just caution, avoiding this little term we call tokenism. Because mm -hmm. a lot of the times they, some people in our field will talk to one, one member of a group and say, oh, well, I'm great. I'm good. I've talked to the one African-American that I know, and this is how we're going to go for all of them. Well, unfortunately, I don't know, Denisha, I don't know about you, but I have not been given my African-American spokesperson badge. <laughs> um, and honestly, I don't want it at this point, but you've got to keep going. It's not just a one and done thing. You have to continue to do that in-depth self-assessment. And it's not like there are not a million and one tools that you can utilize. Um, one of the things I love is just sitting down, having conversations, not, and even, not even with just my parents or with my colleagues, but just friends like, Hey, I don't, a prime example, I, I never grew up around Muslim Americans. I am very, very ignorant when it comes to the religion, but I have a client who is Muslim, who identifies as, I have gone to my friends and has said, look, talk to me like I'm three, break this whole thing down from top to bottom. 
I still don't know everything, but at least I can go in and start to have those conversations with parents. And they've seemed very, very open compared to walking in saying, no, you need to do X, Y, and Z. Eh, it's not going to work like that. Can I just say, like, there is a starting point. Like, if you are working with a client who is from a background that you have no clue about, there is a starting point. You are supposed to go do some research, read about it. There's no way that I will walk into a person's home if I get a a call and I hear you know, that we don't speak the same language. I'm asking questions, you know, obviously it's part of intake anyway. I'm asking questions and then I am going to research customs. Now I could get to your home and you don't abide by these customs. I just need to know a starting point, right? And so, and of course, then when I have this starting point, I am going to go ahead and and ask you how, what applies to you, right? And so it helps formulate something. So if, if I've, if you are, you know, Muslim, but you don't practice, okay. And then what still comes up, what's still important to that individual? It's just good to have like a background, a, a background knowledge about it. And that is your first step as a behavior analyst is to research. Don't take the lazy way out because your clients are not going to explain everything to you. Like you're there, you're not going to get to sit down with them and say, okay, so tell me everything about being black you know absolutely but it's gonna if you've done some research it might shape your questions that you might ask like like we were talking about police earlier if you know that you're gonna teach a community helpers program it might shape the way that you ask that question so at least doing some some digging some background so before you go in there um in the chapter that you have in the book y'all talk about assessments right um and there was a, a there was a few assessments that you all gave and one that stuck out to me was uh Randall David's work how do you relate to various groups of people in society um and so basically in that chapter though y'all were just talking about like self assessments in general so can you talk to us about like how to conduct a self assessment to identify obviously our professional professional and personal areas of competence in respect to culture and diversity it's simple, and the, the answer to that question is simple and complicated at the same time. Um, the first thing you have to do, um, get into a quiet place uh, where, you know, there's not that much, turn your phones off, you know, get off Instagram and all this other stuff. Um, pick any assessment that'll work for you, and I mean any assessment, and actually sit down and think about it. You know, um, conducting a self-assessment is not something that you can do in three minutes and say, oh, I'm great on everything, because... I know personally I've done self-assessments and just checked, yes, 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 I'm great. Two days later, I go back and look at the assessment. I'm like, wait a minute, I definitely do that. I definitely don't do that. So you have to be able to confront your own demons, be able to sit in a feeling of we're we're human beings. We don't, we are not, we're not built to be uncomfortable. Lord knows we're not. If that's not with masks and COVID, if that has not been demonstrated, I don't know how other we can do that. But in order to gain authentic knowledge, you've got to be uncomfortable to be able to sit in a space where maybe I do have an issue with this particular group. Maybe I don't feel comfortable working with this particular particular cultural group. And that's okay. That is absolutely okay because your personal beliefs and your we all grew up with our own personal beliefs. Lord only knows. But 
the only way you're going to know kind of where your your boundaries are and where your buffers are is you've got to be able to you got to do a self-assessment once you've finished sitting down and i'd say do more than one because there is a billion out there def, like if i look at it like this only because my my friends do them if you are if you can sit down and do any of those quizzes on instagram and facebook and these social media sites you have enough time to do a self-assessment lord only knows you can probably get eight done in an evening um but as once you've done that then you've got to figure out where your areas of opportunity are and actually seek out understanding not just the surface i read a book i read a chapter i watched a youtube video but read more than just one thing if you i'll say for african-americans hmm, african if you don't know a lot about african-american history it's more than just martin luther king rosa parks and harriet tubman shocking mm-hmm. I know. But if you don't know, like for me, I am an African-American male. I had to do a self-assessment and realize that there was a population. Um, This is a really great paper. It's called Developing a Decolonization Practice for Settler Colonizers. So it's geared towards white people. Um, It was written by Wins and it was published in 2011. I encourage everybody to engage with it. Finally, we get to act and what role act could play in this work. Can we go back real quick? I want to talk about like, I I just want like clarification on like cultural collectivity. Can you give me some examples of that? Because I think sometimes it's like when, when somebody asks me like what it's like to be American, like I don't, I feel like I never have a good answer to that. You know, it's like, does that mean like I, I like fireworks and drink beer on 4th of July? Like, I don't, I don't know what that means. And like, none of that has any simplistic way because I am not trained by any stretch of the imagination. And I then get myself into more and more and more of a cycle of, well, maybe I just need to do this better, which is not then accepting and being one with those thoughts. I don't know going on um but i think if we use act and we have coaches around us that recognize when we're stressed and we accept that feedback from those of us around us we can start to learn more about ourselves and for me my 10 year old i've worked really really hard um, to teach him when he is able to ask for a break, when he's able to ask for more time, when he is able to say, I'm not ready yet, uh, really listening to those those words that come out of his mouth. Um, he has a diagnosis of ADHD. He is most likely on a spectrum, and he was millimeters away from an ODD diagnosis. And we've come so far with him, and now he's starting to come back on me and say, Mom, your voice just changed. How are you feeling? Uh, Mom, Mom, you, you are clenching your teeth. Did you notice that? Um, do you think you, maybe you're listening to this special song that he and I both listen to um, would help you calm down? Would you like to do that with me? And having that coach and being respectful of my 10-year-old who's telling me that I need to take a chill pill um, is just 
just wanted to take the time here to let you know that if you're thinking about doing a podcast, there's a way for you to do a show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Yeah, you know, uh, we probably would have never gotten the show off the ground if it wasn't for a Pretty Easy Podcast. So Pretty Easy Podcast helps podcasters get their shows recorded and posted with a complete podcast studio at your disposal. Record from your home or your office or at the park. Pretty Easy Podcast caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. So if you have an idea for a show and you need someone to rely on to help you get it done, go to prettyeasypodcast.com and sign up today. Be heard and have some fun podcasting. You know you want to do it, so go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. It is, but ACT means acceptance and commitment therapy or training. Some people use that to um, vary the T. But ACT is essentially a behavior analytic approach that tries to foster uh, flexible responding. Psychological flexibility. Psychological flexibility um, while in the presence of aversive private events. So, um, Dana, you talked a little bit about like private events for you. What ACT also does um, 